So Philippians chapter 3, beginning in 12, Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it known, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if, anything, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in me, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So last week we had just come to the end of verse 16, and again, Paul has been talking about a couple of things. Number one, the great value that he places on the knowledge of God and knowing God or knowing Christ. And in relation to that, how little he thinks about his own achievements, whether it's what he attained within Judaism as far as his stature and his position, uh, whether it's in the pursuit of righteousness, whether it's what he inherited because he was born of the tribe of Benjamin, and, and uh, there are a lot of special things that kind of went along with that. And he, he recognized all those things. And in so he wasn't saying that they were just trash. But what he was saying is in comparison to gaining the knowledge of Christ, they were trash. So that's an important distinction. So he wasn't like, you know, he wasn't like throwing away his life and saying, I reject everything and I reject my parents and I reject my heritage. You know, that's not what he was doing. Uh, but he was making this contrast between these two things because what he was warning them about and warning against was this idea that we could, on our own, attain uh, a righteousness where, in, in essence, God is indebted to us. And that was a very strong belief, not only among um, newer Jewish believers, but many individuals had that idea that, you know, you, you want to please the gods, you know, because they would have brought that mentality into Christianity until they learned better. So, so they, weren't no, they were no longer thinking of pleasing the gods, but they were thinking of pleasing God. And I need to do this, this, and this, and this, and this. And Paul wants him to understand the truth, which is you didn't do anything to earn salvation, and you don't do anything to maintain your salvation. We do pursue those things, but we're not pursuing those things only in the flesh. We are pursuing those things through the strength that Christ gives us, and what should motivate us is the great value that is there, that, that this is the, that we this is the one thing, if you're going to prioritize your life, this is the, this is the one thing that you hold up that you are to uh, pursue. So I came across this in a book that was written by not Francis Schaeffer, but another Schaeffer, Daniel Schaeffer. Uh, but he says this about what Paul has been writing about here. And this individual talks about um, a, a, a warrior king in Persia who said this. He said, success in life is all in the planning. So what he's going to do is he's going to start to go through these phrases that people use as far as 
the one-liners people use to motivate themselves or the one-liners they use to try to achieve success. And so uh, this guy went through that and said, so if you were to look at the life of Mordecai, uh, he's the one that shows up in the book dealing with Queen Esther. And he says, he said, if you were to, to kind of uh, put his life into a sentence, it would be, the price of obedience is never too high. Uh, for Queen Esther, the, the phrase might be, what I am is more important than what I have. And of course, she risked her life uh, to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people. Um, today, people may live, life, may live life by this phrase, my only goal in life is to catch up, meaning to catch up with others. Um, maybe others may, ha may have a, a statement that says to have as little trouble in life as I can. That's how they want to live. Um, and others will have this, you can never have too much. Um, of course, all those can sound pretty empty for the individual who knows the Lord. But what we need to recognize is we want to, we want to contrast those again with what Paul said. So Paul didn't say you can never have too much. Paul didn't say my goal in life is to have as little trouble as possible. What he said is this, one thing I do, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so one of the things we should do when we evaluate our life is to ask ourselves, so what is the priorities for us? What, what is the thing that we are pursuing? And again, as I mentioned before, remember that even though we can tend to think that it's this all or nothing pursuit, it's not what it is. It's, it's an understanding of priorities. So again, when you, are, when you get married, one of the top goals in your life is to please your partner. You want, you want, to, you want to look out for them. You want to care for them. That is, that's a top priority. And most things in your life kind of come under that umbrella. That, that's, that's a guiding principle, so to speak, in how you make decisions, how you live. Now, there are some things more important than that, primarily, which would be our relationship with God. But you don't live your life and say, well, I'm trying to please my, my wife. I can't do anything else. That's not, what, that's not how you live life. Your life is going to shrink and be pretty small and very unimpressive if that's how you're going to live. It's going to be very unexciting. So when it comes to pursuing God, and this, this very, which is to be a high priority, we want to think about it that it's a guiding principle. So I'm seeking God in all that I do. I want to glorify God in all that I do. So my life doesn't shrink where I get rid of things. It actually expands. So in my relationships with others, I want to glorify Christ. In my job, I want to glorify Christ. So what happens is, is that as you live your life, your life is enhanced, and you're able to make better decisions concerning all these other areas of your life because you are committed to Christ. But your priority should always be kind of on track. In other words, you know that no matter how much success you might have at work, you don't want to be identified only by your work. You know, that's not the all in all that there is because we are more than just that, all right? Um, life is to be much more fulfilling. So having God as a priority and the pursuit of the knowledge of God helps us to be, in one sense, a, a fully, uh, uh, a, a fully mature, a fully... Uh, I'm trying to think, I can't think of the word I want to use. Yeah, uh, yeah I guess you would say grounded, a well-rounded individual who has a, this full personality and you're living all of life. That's clearly the idea. We live all of life. Uh, we're able to approach all of life without being overwhelmed by life. Um, you know, because of the, the Super Bowl coming up Sunday, 
you know, there's a lot of emphasis and a lot of stories that are going around about some of the different players. So I'll be honest, one of my favorite stories is the guy that plays quarterback for the Niners. Two years ago, he was the last pick in the draft. They have a special name for that guy, Mr. Irrelevant. There's never been anyone ever in the NFL who's been the last pick who's ever done anything really to speak of. And this guy is the starting quarterback for the team in the, in the NFL. And he puts up with a lot of guff. People, always, people are always downplaying, you know, how good he is. They say, well, he's got all these good players around him. Until someone else points out, well, but the other great quarterbacks had other great players around them. I mean, what, you know, so what's the difference? But what's really cool about this guy, I think, is he makes it real clear that his life is not all about the accolades he can get and how high his star might rise in the NFL because the cheers of men can be gone tomorrow and that, that he is who he is because of who Jesus Christ is. And he talks about the Lord and his relationship with the Lord and how that makes his life full and complete. And all of his coaches and teammates talk about his maturity and his humbleness. And what each one has said, which I think is really great, is they always attribute it back to his faith. So that means that this guy is living out his faith when the cameras are off as well as when the cameras are on. Because you'll hear guys in sports sometimes talk about God and God this and God that. But there's not a whole lot in their life about God. Um, and sometimes there'll be certain guys who will talk about Jesus. And some of those, I think, are genuine believers. Others, I think they're just talking the way that would make mama happy. Um, but he's one of those guys, and there may be several, but he's one of those guys where this true humility is based on this very uh, vital and vigorous and authentic relationship that he has with Jesus Christ. And so what I found interesting was several years ago, I read an article, because you know, in the NFL, like I guess all the pro sports, you know, these guys earn an enormous amount of money. Well, that money's being paid by somebody. And they don't want to just pay anybody that. Like, I just can't go there and say, hey, I'm a big guy, pay me money. It's not going to happen. All right? They, and so they have all these tests that they put these guys through. You know, they check their character. They look at their record going all the way back to high school. They check their social media. They check with all their coaches. They check with their, their um, teachers in school. I mean, they're, they're, they do all this stuff because they're going to invest millions of dollars in these individuals. And so you want everything you can not to blow that because you don't get that money back. And so in one of the exams, it's a written exam that they give to uh, individuals who are waiting for the draft, there is a psychological evaluation. And in there, what I think is really interesting, and it's still there, that it states if an individual has a strong faith, and then in parentheses it says particularly Christianity, they're not a good uh, bet because they won't be as cutthroat in their competitiveness uh, as others because they kind of go through some of the things the Bible says. And I'm like, have they ever met a guy named Tim Tebow who was as competitive as, it, as they become, as they come? And of course, this guy is as competitive as they come. I mean, he's he wants to win, but he's not identified. So the psychological exam, the idea is that if you're not going to be identified with this all-or-thing attitude, you're, you're going to lose an edge in competitiveness. But individuals who are strongly committed to Christ continue to blow that out of the water. They continue to just, but even though they don't change that, it's just kind of how the world is, and you know, we should expect the world to be that way. So I just think that's kind of cool uh, that, that that contrast and that tension is there. Uh, and yet for these individuals, they're showing 
that he's pursuing Christ, pursuing the knowledge of Christ, that's the top priority in his life, and that doesn't diminish the pursuit of excellence in the rest of his life. It actually enhances it. Uh, in fact, he actually becomes a much more stable person because there's a lot of individuals who pursue things to the utmost and they, you can become psychotic. Um, if you've done any reading, you know, Howard Hughes was a brilliant man and super rich. He was weird. And he got weirder as life went on. Why is that? Well, one glaring thing to me is he did not know Christ. And this guy ended up, with all of his money, he ended up living in a penthouse that he owned, watching the same movie from the 1960s over and over again, very rarely bathed, his fingernails grew out several inches, long hair, that's Howard Hughes. There you go. There's joy in life. <laughs> he didn't want anybody around. He was a germaphobe. I mean, it just goes on. And to me, that's just a simple example of, of how we can become unhinged, and particularly for the individual who's not pursuing Christ. That's not the only reason we do that, but I do think that it's telling. Uh, and so as Paul's talking about this, then this, this is not a description of a man who's such a religious zealot that he doesn't care about human life. Or that he's such a religious zealot, he, doesn't, he runs all over people because he just wants them to accept his way of things. He does want them to accept his way of things. But he wants them to be informed. He wants to teach them. He wants to show them that he's, he's living the life. It's a very different thing. Um, and so uh, it's okay if others think that we're so religious we're going to become unhinged. We should actually encourage that thought and say, well, Watch my life and let me know when that happens because if, if I become unhinged, I definitely want to know because it gives us an opportunity to show them that life is, does not become unhinged when you know Christ. So as we go on, once again, beginning in verse 17 then, uh, very important verse. I, I I don't, when I say very important, I'm not saying it's the most important because as soon as we finish verse 17, the next verse will be, this is an important verse. So, um, you know, they're all going to be important, but he says this. Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So what Paul is going to get at now is after he's talked about this attitude that he has about pursuing the knowledge of Christ and what that means and how he values it and all the rest, he wants to also now move into, I would say, some very practical things to help these individuals to understand what he's saying and to pursue that themselves. And so he begins with this. So Paul wants his life not to be admired, but to be imitated. So it's a very important thing. Right, when it comes to Christianity, we're not look, we should not be looking for people to follow us. Okay, it's not a cult. You know, I'm not looking for people to follow me. So, like, so when people come to this church, this is not my church. And sometimes we use that. In fact, I'll even use that. I'll, you know, if I invite somebody, I say, well, you can come to my church. All right, I but you can say the same thing. You can say to people, John Earl can tell you somebody, yeah, you should come to my church. You know, we all have, in a sense, a personal possession of the thing. But the idea is we're not looking to follow people. We want to follow Christ. But Paul, who's very influential, very brilliant and all the rest, has hit on what he wants people to do when he says this without shame because he's not bragging. Basically, the idea is imitate me. He's like he's, it's like he's saying this. So you want to know Christ? Do what I do. He's not bragging. He's not saying, oh, follow me, and I'll take you to the Lord. No, do what I do. So it's like, you know, 
I read the word, you read the word. I said the word, you study the word. I fellowship with believers, you fellowship with believers. I pray, you pray. I pray alone, you pray alone. I pray with other believers, you pray with other believers. Just go on and on and on. The idea is you imitate me and you will know God. That's kind of the idea. So we should welcome that and we can do so with humility. So Paul wants us to be imitators of those who are wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. So in actuality, not everybody can really say this, or maybe should say this, because we're not wholeheartedly following Christ. We want to make sure that's what we're doing. And this is what's at stake. What's at stake is the integrity of the gospel. Right? The gospel of Christ is true no matter what. It is pure no matter what. But the way believers live and act can lend credibility or we can cause it to be something that's diminished. So in reality, I cannot diminish the gospel message because it it's, it's, can stand on its own. But the idea is when we're communicating that to non-believers, we know how people will easily dismiss things. And so they'll say, well, you know, I know Ron talks about church all the time. You see how that guy acts? I don't want to go to that church. Right? So, so the gospel is still unblemished, but he's tarnished it by the way he lives. That's, that's the idea. That's what we mean by the, the, the gospel is uh, at stake. That's why this is, uh, this one thing is really important. None of us can live perfectly, and we're all going to blow it. That's why it is important that if you do mess up, you know, you, let's say you're in a bad mood one day, and you yell at your neighbor, or you're, or you're short with someone at work, the next day or whenever, you need to, to tell them that you're sorry and ask them to forgive you. It's very important. And I do think, often, that that actually gives to us a a stronger foundation to share the Lord with someone. Because what we, want, we don't want them to think ever that you become a Christian, you become perfect, or we become a Christian and we think we're perfect. Because we're not perfect. What we want them to know is that we are serious about being committed to Christ and obeying what he says. So then, when you ask someone to forgive you, let's say at work, and they say, ah, it's not, it's not a big deal. That's when you say, no, no, no. No, it is. I'm, and that's when you say, I'm a Christian I know, how, you know, I know how people get really fed up with phony Christians, and I never want to come across that way. And Jesus has made it really clear that if I've done wrong, and, and I know I'm not perfect, that I need to make things right. And so I, you know, I've asked God to forgive me, but I also need to go to those I've offended. And so I, I am asking that you forgive me. See, what they, what they see there is someone who takes their sin seriously, but they also see an individual who seems to have enough integrity or strength of character that, that you don't have this pride issue that prevents you from admitting that you've done wrong. The world's terrified of that. You know that. You ever listen to politicians? How often do they ask for forgiveness or say they've done wrong? I'll never forget what Trump said one time where he said, I've never asked for forgiveness in my entire life. Never saw the need. Yeah, okay, well, there's a few things I know about you now, bud, and, and that statement alone, just based on what the Bible says, you're wrong. All right? So we know that's not what we want, that's not how we want to come across to people. So when we mess up, that gives us an opportunity to let people know that we take the Lord seriously. And, and a lot of times, you know, they, it doesn't mean they're going to drop to their knees right now and say, oh my gosh, I found a real Christian, I want to get saved today. I mean, that could happen, but normally it doesn't. But sometimes what that may do is they now begin to watch you. Because now you're different. That's not what they were expecting to hear, and that may not be what they wanted to hear. 
right? They didn't, want, they didn't want to get into all that religious stuff. And you just, you know, gave them seven sentences of your, of your commitment to Christ. And that was seven sentences more than they ever wanted to hear. But that's okay. So we don't want to be afraid of this idea of people imitating us. It's not that we walk around and tell people to imitate us. You don't have to get a t-shirt that says imitate me. Um, you know, that, but the idea is, is that when Paul says this, Again, it's not a statement of someone who's being arrogant. Um, it's someone who recognizes that, that there's been, there is an ongoing transformation in their life that's been brought about by Jesus Christ. Paul didn't say this just here. He said this also in Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 4, 16, he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. All right, so more than once Paul said that. Paul knows he's an apostle. He knows that. He knows what he's done. He knows what his background is. He knows that... You know, he, I don't know if he knew in advance that he was writing most of the New Testament, but he, he was aware that he was, in a sense, he's the man. He knows that. He's very prominent in the churches, start all these churches. Right? He knows that. And uh, he says this. So, again, he's not being egotistical. He's not expressing false humility. Um, you know, he's not saying, well, I'm not really worth imitating. No, he's not doing that. Um, he knew that he lived with integrity before God. Again, so that doesn't mean that he thought he lived perfectly, but he knew his motive. His motive was pure. He really wanted to follow Christ. You can have integrity like that as well, where we, we follow Christ. We are, in one sense, doing the best that we can. When we mess up, we mess up and we admit that and seek forgiveness, and we may even struggle with that from time to time. But there's still integrity in that because we are, we're fully committed to following Christ. We want to follow what he said. We don't, we don't hold grudges against other people. We don't think the worst about other people. Uh, we're willing to forgive other people. Um, we're willing to, to go the extra mile and be nice to those who are not nice to us because we're real Christians, and that's what Christians do. So Paul, again, was not, he didn't have false humility. He wasn't being egotistical. He was able to live with integrity before God. Um, in fact, if you read through what we've already read, he was, he, what did he say? he was actually still in the process of knowing Christ. He didn't say, oh, I've arrived. Imitate me and I'll get you to the final destination. No, he's on the journey, so to speak. I don't like that word because it's been misused a lot. But, I mean, that is what's happening. He is on a journey. Um, and we are on a spiritual journey, but it's a very specific one. You know, we're following Christ. <laughs> and uh, we're not just kind of looking for dreams and visions and all the rest. Um, so, again, he said that he was in the process of coming to know Christ more fully the power of his resurrection. So he, again, he's not implying that he, had, that he has a, a sinless perfection. Um, but again, his life is an example of how believers should live. All right, so again, don't allow yourself to think that because you are aware of all of your faux pas that you cannot uh, let others know that, that they can follow your example. It's okay. Well, again, we're not bragging. And besides, if you have children and grandchildren, you don't have to say it anyway. They're going to follow your example. So we want to make sure that we are doing the best that we can. You know, and there's been times, um, sometimes my wife had to force me, uh, where I had to go to my kids and apologize because I was too hard on them. Or I was wrong, where I was scolding one and they were innocent. And, uh, you know, that's not fun. Even as a parent, it's not fun to do that. Go tell your kid that you were wrong, you know, because you, you came at him with all of your authority and all of your righteousness, and you're going to set them straight, and all this, and then you find out that you are completely off base. And 
And I do think it's important for us to do more than just say we're sorry. We need to ask them to forgive us. And I'll never forget the first, well, I probably should have done it sooner, but the first time I actually had to do it, um, I had jumped all over my second born. I mean, I climbed down his throat. I mean, I was letting him know what, what he did and how wrong it was and the whole deal. And then, uh, so he went to bed crying. And uh, then as soon as I were talking, uh, some, some, somehow in the conversation it came out that I had jumped down the throat of the wrong kid. And he had done nothing wrong. Very rarely was he innocent. This time he was. And I, I felt horrible. And so I, we were talking, and I said, well, you know, I, I, you know he's in bed. I'll, tomorrow I'll, I'll tell him that I'm sorry or whatever. And so then my wife, in the power of the Holy Spirit, said, remember what you said last week? <laughs> I was teaching something in Sunday school in a Bible study, and she said, you need to do it right now. You know, and so I had to go, and he was still awake, and uh, talked to him. Here's the great thing, though. When I told him that I was wrong and I was sorry, guess how long it took him to forgive me? About less than two seconds. That, I mean, that's awesome, you know. It's just, it's just that's how it's supposed to go. And so, you know, he forgave me. I hugged him. He was no longer crying. He went to sleep, and it's all good. Right. So all those things, so we don't want to allow ourselves to think, because the, the evil one wants us to think that, well, to be hypercritical of your life, maybe to be uh, morbid in your introspection, I say, well, I really don't want anybody, I'm not an example for anyone. You need to get off that. And if you really are not an example, why aren't you, and what are you going to do to get it changed? You know, this is not a thing where... Uh, well, you know, I guess I need to kind of work on it over the next several months. No, you need to start right now. We need to get busy. This is important. This is not kind of like whatever. And, and, you know, because we live in America, a lot of times we kind of accept that. And we should never accept it for ourselves. We probably wouldn't accept it for our... Imagine your kid comes home and he's, and he's got six classes and he's got four Fs. And you know what the problem is. The problem is, is he's just lazy. Uh, that's what it, that's, a lot of times that's what it is. They're not stupid, they're just lazy. And your son says, well, yeah, I know, I, I need to work on it. I guess, I guess I just kind of, you know, I need to make some changes. What do you, what do you mean you kind of think you might need to make some changes? No, you do need to make some changes, and I'm going to help you, you know? Uh, so you clearly have a problem making right decisions, so there's no TV and no video games for the next six weeks. Uh, so you can have more time to spend on your studies, and then we'll slowly grad let those things come back in your life and see how you handle it. So time management now is under control. All right, that's, that's what we expect of them. Well, we need the same thing with ourselves. Well, then also the same thing when it comes to our spiritual life. So again, Paul also adds, because if you look at the verse, he, he talks about others. All right, look at what he says. He says, not only did, that he, does he encourage them to join in imitating him, he says, then keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he is not at all pretending he's the only one. He says he wants them to look around, and he's probably here he's probably referring to Timothy or Andy Paphroditus, all right, because those guys were kind of like Paul, they, and they walked with the Lord. Um, 
And again, these men show us in practical ways how we should walk with the Lord and how we should do with relationships. And so that's kind of the idea. We need to be looking. So I, can, uh, I have it in your notes there, I think, just a few names. This is not exhaustive. And uh, there are some women that you could read about as well. But this is just a real quick thing about individuals where you can read a biography. This is where Christian biographies can be helpful to realize that there's a lot of individuals, a lot of different personality types, a lot of different IQs um, who pursue God. And it's, in some cases, in many cases, extraordinary things. So there's uh, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, Adoram Judson, Judson C.H. Spurgeon, Hudson Taylor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Francis Schaeffer, etc. And with a lot of those, I've read biographies, and I'm not saying you have to read the big ones. Like the, there's a biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's great, but it is 2,300 pages. All right. It's really good, by the way, but I'm not saying you have to start with that. All right. But the idea is, is that when you read about these other guys, it can be, it's, it's both humbling and encouraging. It can be humbling because you can think, well, I ain't done much of my life. <laughs> you know, when you compare, yeah, there's this, if you have any idea or you have this, this thought that somehow the Lord's going to reward you for all the great works you did and you read these guys, yeah, you haven't done nothing. You've not done a thing. Uh, and that, you know, because compared to them, we haven't. Uh, but at the same time, it's very encouraging because these are, a lot of these guys are average. They really are average guys, but they have worked at it. And the ones who do have maybe a great IQ, whatever, they worked at it. All right? There's a, um, just because an individual has a lot of, we, we can't always excuse someone's success uh, or dismiss someone from being an example just because we think they're more talented than us. That's not, that's not valid. Um, there are tons of individuals who may have a great deal of privileges, may have a, a high IQ, all those kind of things, and they just waste it. Happens all the time. I read an article once. I think most people still know who Michael Jordan is, even though he's been retired for a long time. And most people think he was, may have been the greatest basketball player to ever lived. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. doesn't really matter. But he was pretty good. And... Um, uh, I was reading a, an article that was written by an NBA scout, uh, and this was way back uh, in the, in, I guess, the, Michael Jordan probably maybe won two or three championships by then. But anyway, the guy said in there, in the article, he said, just so the American public will know this, he says he personally knew six or seven individuals who were just as talented and just as good in basketball as Michael Jordan. But at that moment, he could go to the playgrounds on New York or in L.A., and he could point out who they were. And he says that he says he guarantees you they're just as good and maybe better. However, he said they wouldn't have the discipline to be coached. They wouldn't, ha they wouldn't have the discipline to be on a real team. And if they could somehow get through all that, when they get that first paycheck, you'll never see them again. And so he went through all these other things that make an individual great, besides just their talent and ability. And there's many individuals that are like that, where they take what they have, which may be incredible, and then they, this dog of determination they have to accomplish even more. So it's not just, oh yeah, he was talented, so that's why that happened. No, 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 that's not how it happens. So these individuals, uh, which this is an incredible list, and, but there's a much bigger list if you try to be exhaustive on all the individuals, both men and women, that God has used in amazing ways uh, throughout the years. Uh, but it can be very encouraging to our lives as Christians. Maybe help us to realize where our focus really does need to be. That, you know, wherever you work, where you work, 
uh, is the field that God has appointed you to, uh, where we can read in Philippians that we've already read, God has placed you in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation to shine his lights. That's where God has placed you. And so we need to start making sure that we do that. And, and there's many ways to do that. So that doesn't mean you, start, you don't start preaching at them. Uh, all right, that may not even be the best thing to do anyway. But the idea is, is that the people you meet, the people you work with, all that's, none of that's by accident. None of it. People you have run-ins with, that is, that is appointed by God, all right, for you to have run-ins with certain people, to give you opportunity to show them what Christ is like, how you're going to handle that, how you're going to forgive, or how you're going to be in a good mood, or how you're going to be kind, or whatever the case may happen to be, or you're maybe even willing to absorb being blamed for something you haven't done and it, you don't freak out about it. Whatever happened, God's giving you this opportunity, all right, to reveal his character to them and what have we done with it? And sometimes, maybe a lot, we haven't done much. We've really messed that up. And so we need to ask the Lord to forgive us and to help us to begin to think about these things uh, in a very particular way. The family that you're in, good grief, all of our family, none of our families are perfect. There's all kinds of characters in our family. All right, there may be a lot, maybe just a few, but you are, and may, you may be one of the few Christians, you may be blessed and be one of many Christians. But we all know that even if your family's blessed with a lot of Christians, not everyone's a Christian. And so we, we need to exemplify um, Christ, both to believers and to non-believers. And that's what Paul's talking about here. So all of us have plenty of work to do. All of us have failed in many ways, but we're not failures. Right, we, we, you're still alive. God's not taking you home, so we need, you need to get busy until that day comes. We, we don't know when we're going to die. It, for some of us, we, we hope not. It may be this week. Maybe many of us have many years, but we don't want to just slack off and say, well, i got a lot of time. No big deal. You know, I'll get to it. You won't get to it. Right, but we, we need to pay attention to that. And it's not that I want to be like Martin Luther or C.H. Spurgeon. I'm not going to be that. I'm not. But whatever gifts and abilities I have, whatever time I have, resources, I can use that as best as I can to glorify the Lord. And I do believe this, that there will be many, 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 many more people that we will meet in heaven that may have accomplished as much or more than these guys. We just haven't heard about them. There's no books written about them. You know, they died in obscurity. There will be many others who may not have even had half the talent these guys did, and yet what they were able to accomplish is going to be incredible. There's a, if you, I don't know if you ever read this, there's a 10-volume history of the Roman Empire by, um, I think it's, is it Gibbons? Is that the, is that the name? Uh, Gibbons. Gibbons, yeah. It's a real well-known um, um, history of, of the Roman Empire. The, it's, a, it's the fall and decline of the Roman Empire. So there's, a, in, in, I think it's in volume four, there's a story about a monk named Telemarchus. I think it's Telemarchus. And this was a, he, this, this, this short, little, fat monk um, was a cook. He really wasn't a monk. He was a cook in a monastery. But he wanted to be a monk, and he lived with the monks. He did everything the monks did, but he was there to serve them. And, and you know, he didn't have the highest IQ. Uh, he wasn't the smartest, you know, knife from the drawer, all of that. But he loved God, and he loved the church, and he loved what they did. And so he's serving God faithfully. And one day he just gets it in his head that he needs to go to Rome. This guy ain't seen nothing. And he wants to go to Rome. And the monsieur of the place tries to talk to him, like, what are you talking about? You have no idea what it's like. 
you're, gonna, you're not going to last five minutes out there, the whole deal. And he goes, no, it's what God wants. He was just, this is what God wants. And so finally they agree. That, I mean, they can't make him stay. And so they pray for him. They give him some bread and things, and off he goes. And remember now, he's lived his whole life in the monastery. Rome is about as decadent as you can get. And so he's on his way to Rome, and when he gets there, you know, the, the, it's another one of those eras where the games are going on. And there's just a mad, he's never seen so many people in his life. And so as, he's, as he enters the city, there's a massive number of people going to the Colosseum. And so he kind of gets jostled around, and he gets caught up in this group. And so he, he ends up almost being carried into the Colosseum, which seats at least 50,000 people. I'm not sure what the actual number is, but it's at least 50,000. I mean, it's a huge place. This is, one of the things that the stadiums we have now are gigantic. Colosseum was big. And so he, he's caught up in this thing. So he's there in the Colosseum, and he sees this huge arena. He doesn't know what's going on. And then the trumpets blast, and there's you know, the, all these announcements made, and then these gladiators come out, and he can't believe what he sees. These guys, not only are they fighting, they're killing each other. And the crowd is into it. You know, there's some big fight, and then the gladiator gets the guy on the ground, and he can't move, and he looks at the crowd or looks to the emperor or whoever's there, like, do I kill the guy or do I let him live? And most of them, yeah, yeah, they want the guy to, they want, they want the guy to, uh, to be killed. And so they slaughter him, and he is freaking out. He's, he didn't even know about this kind of stuff. He cannot believe what he sees. I mean, he is in shock. So... When all this is going on, he just begins to yell. Nobody can hear him, but he begins to yell. In the name of Jesus, you have to stop. Well, no one can hear him. And so he kind of makes his way down. He's going toward the arena, and he's, he's yelling at the top of his lungs. Nobody can hear him. So finally, he's able to climb. You know, he's this little fat guy with short arms and short legs, but he climbs on top of the wall, and he's facing the crowd, and he's screaming for them, you know, in the name of Jesus. He says he, he's asking to stop. And finally, people realize that he's trying to say something. And so they start trying to get the crowd to, uh, to calm down. They finally get to where they can hear him. And he says, in the name of Jesus, you need to stop. Well, someone comes along and they push him off the wall. And he goes into the arena. And he gets up off the, off the ground and he kind of runs toward where all these guys are. He's these huge guys, you know, with their swords and their spears. And so he's yelling the same thing. In the name of Jesus, please stop. So when he's doing this, you know, the crowd, some people are reacting in different ways. Many of them are laughing. And so the gladiators kind of punches him, and he kind of falls and rolls over a little bit, you know, and everybody breaks out in laughter. And so he gets up and says the same thing. And so, you know, the other gladiators, they join in, and so they, they kick him and, and uh, do all these things. And so everybody's, everybody's still laughing at this thing and what's going on. But he keeps getting up, and he keeps yelling the same thing. So finally... One of the gladiators gets kind of fed up with, with what's going on, takes his sword, runs him right through, sticks him in the belly. He, and the way that it's described, he kind of opens up like an overripe watermelon, falls to the ground, and he, he bleeds out. This is what happens. When he's stabbed, the arena goes quiet. Nobody moves. And then, I don't know how much time goes by, but somebody gets up, and they leave. Someone else gets up, and they leave. And eventually, the stadium empties. 
And according to Gibbons, that was the last gladiator fight that ever took place in the Coliseum. Absolutely amazing. Unbelievable story. And that was the last time. And you know how important those games were. That was just insane. So, you know, we only know about that story because this secular historian, I guess, I guess he's secular, um, put that little, I don't even know where he got it from, put that story in there. But whoever knew about this short, fat little monk who in one hand would amount to nothing, would be killed in the gladiator arena, but because of what he did, he stopped it. I just, to me, it's one of those really cool, amazing stories, to say the least. So I think that uh, what we have to recognize is, you know, it doesn't matter if you're prominent. You don't have to be on TV. You don't have to write a book. You don't, have to even have, you don't even have to have a podcast, which everybody and his uncle has one now. I think me and Ron, the other guys, don't have a podcast. All right? But, you know, you, you don't have to do any of those things. The bottom line is, is we just live for the Lord we are. Who knows the impact that we're going to have on other individuals? And that's what the Lord's looking for. You know, he's looking for faithfulness, uh, looking for us to, to be committed to him. And so we have to stop with the excuses and stop with the idea that, well, I really can't make that much of a difference. You don't have to make a difference in the, in the lives of a thousand people. You only have to make the difference in the life of one. And we all know this would be true. What if you have a son or a daughter who goes off to college, and like what happens to a lot of kids that go off to, to college, who maybe were even raised in the church, they just walk away from the church and they walk away from the Lord. And you know it. And you're so concerned about that. And you're praying and you're asking for God to do something. You're removed from them. They're at college. They're surrounded by 30,000 weird kids who don't know the Lord either. And it's just like this, this mess. And they have all these weird liberal professors. and just, Everything's just against them. All right? And they've gotten caught up in it. What if there's an individual who's not famous, never written a book, never had much of an influence on a lot of people, somehow befriends your kid and is used by the Lord to turn him around, and that's the only person's life they make a difference in? Would that matter to you? We all know the answer would be yes, absolutely. That's who people are. Remember that whoever we meet, that's someone's daughter, someone's son, someone's wife, someone's, uh, someone's husband, that's someone's dad, someone's mother. It, and it, has a, it can have a tremendous effect for years to come. If you've ever looked at any, any genealogy, whether it's yours or someone else's, you can have a tremendous effect on a family for generations. Because that's what happens with the Lord. The Lord does that. The entire family's lives, the entire direction is changed. Because of that. And it's all, many times, because of one individual. What people used to say, uh, they used to say, think, this would be a kind of a popular thing. You know, when, they would, when uh, somebody didn't want to teach Sunday school, they'd say, well, remember, at some point, there was somebody who had little Billy Graham in their Sunday school <laughs> class. You never know who you're going to affect. Which, and that's true. I mean, who knows if, the, if that teacher would have any effect in that sense. But who knows? Maybe. But that would be true. Um, and so... Uh, that's why we, we want to recognize the significance um, of, of, you know, we say as Christians that each life is important, don't we? We say every life is sacred, but we don't act like it. If, if, if I can't reach 100 people, then my life's a waste. Oh, really? Is that what it is? Is that how we view life now? 
If I can't save a thousand abortions, it's not worth to save one. Nobody thinks that. So we need to, we need to you know, turn our thinking around and recognize when it comes to the responsibilities that we have as Christians that we, we need to realize that God has placed us where he's placed us. God is the one who determines your sphere of influence. He's the one that determines everything. And our job is to serve him well where we are. And that's what Paul's doing. This is what happens that Paul ended up being used by the Lord to write most of the New Testament. But that's okay. I, all I know is I would not want that responsibility. Mercy saves. I'm glad it was Paul. And God was, you know, Paul was specially fitted for that. So going back to the verse, so he says, uh, again in the verse, where he says, keep your eyes on the, you know, mark out these men. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So the wording there in the Greek language where it says, keep your eyes, or maybe your translation says, observe those who walk. Paul is saying, keep your eye on those who conduct themselves as I do and make them your goal or model for conduct. So what, you can read books and biographies, but we need, to, we need to look around at the believers that we know within our, within our context, local, local church or what have you. There's going to be godly people. And we need, to, we need to mark them out. We need, we need to see who they are. We need to observe them. And, and the word observe there, uh, it, it, the, the Greek word that's used is skopeo, or, uh, which is from sco, uh, skopos, which it's where we get our English word scope from, as a microscope or telescope. So the idea means to spy out or to look at, to observe, to contemplate, to mark. So it's not just to see, but it's, it's to mark them. You, you observe them, and now you're thinking about it. It implies mental consideration, so it conveys the picture of attentively fixing one's attention upon something, uh, in this case it's someone, with a desire for emulation, to emulate them, or an interest in. So the idea can be to aim at. So we are to contemplate, look into, examine, inspect all those words, to continue to regard closely, to notice carefully, pay attention to, and keep one's attention on. That's what all that means. So we've had a few people through the years in this church um, who have died from cancer who died very slowly. Um, you, know, it, uh, um, you know, they would be uh, diagnosed with cancer. It would be stage four or late stage three, and treatments didn't work well. And several of those individuals were, were very godly people. And um, I would encourage, I encourage everyone that I met, I would tell them about that individual and how they were dying. And what I meant by that was that these were individuals who wanted to follow the Lord. They had followed the Lord in their life. And they also were the same as they were dying. They didn't become someone different. Because that can happen sometimes. People can, can become weird. They, or they start doing different things or maybe things out of character. And these individuals did not. Both women and men who wanted to die well, who wanted to die faithfully, serving the Lord. So they, they could no longer come and teach but they wanted to serve the Lord by being obedient, by the way they treated their spouse, by the way they treated their family, by the way they treated other people, by the way they treated their nurses and all those things. They wanted, they wanted their life to end well serving the Lord, representing the Lord well. Um, and so he's telling us we need, we need to mark those people out and we, and we need to imitate those people. We need, we need to compare ourselves. We need, we, need, we need to compare ourselves to them. So yes, we compare ourselves to the Lord, but we also compare ourselves to other believers. We're not looking for other believers who are struggling in sin so we can say, I'm better than they are. No, 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 no. This is the opposite. These are those that we need to imitate. 
how come I'm not like that or I want to be like that, right? Um, two people in particular that I think of a great deal, there is Trisha Lanier, a uh, very godly woman, uh, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which normally when they catch it, it's late, and so things aren't gonna go well. Um, and she died slowly. A very godly woman, uh, she had a great demeanor uh, about her, and it was that way all the way till she passed. Another individual was Charles Bowden, incredible man, very godly. Um, I, I discovered um, that, that he, he was a civil engineer, worked downtown, but his reputation at his job was the exact same reputation he had here. Godly man, considerate of other people, well-mannered, even-tempered. I mean, his entire life uh, in the secular world that he worked, he was viewed that way. It's incredible. And he told me himself he wanted to die well. He wanted to, you know, he wanted to make sure. He wanted me to pray for In fact, one time when I went to go see him, you know, his hospital bed is in, the, is in the living room, and he would have times where there was a lot of pain, and he was uh, a little short with his wife. And he'd already told her he was sorry and all that, but he felt, he felt he's still in pain, and he feels really bad. So he wanted me to pray for him, but he didn't want me to pray for the pain to stop. What he wanted me to do was to pray that he would treat his wife well and with kindness and gently, regardless of how bad the pain was. That's what he wanted. And that's, that's what I did. That's what, we, that's what I prayed for. Um, so I don't know how I'm going to die, but if I'm going to die that kind of slow death, I, I want to die like that. That's how, I don't know if I will. I want to. I want to be like that when I die. I want to be, if my wife's caring for me, um, I want to be kind and gracious and gentle and regardless of how I feel. And that can be hard. All of us know all it takes is a stinking headache for you to snap at somebody, right? We get a little bit of flu symptoms and we're short, all right? Energies are down, our energy level goes down and, you know, we're ready to climb down someone's throat. I don't know about you, but I know I do. I try not to. I feel bad, but I guess not bad enough, you know? And so we need, we need to, I'm a Christian. Christians don't do that. Christians do feel bad. Christians do feel pain. Christians do sometimes become short, but you don't have to take it out on people. You don't have to do that. All right? we, the Lord does continue to change us so we become like Christ. Remember, when Christ was in the midst of all that suffering he went through, which you know, when you read up on the kind of scourging he received and what crucifixion does to you, man, that, that is, that, there's no way to, for us to even wrap our minds around the kind of pain your body goes through. It's intense. But you're conscious the whole time. It's, it's insane. You don't see him irritable with anybody. You don't see him getting sarcastic. Man, I would be, oh. I mean, I'd be trying to, you know, he just didn't happen. It's incredible. Um, in fact, remember when, the, when he was on the cross, he's in between these two thieves, and one of them is cussing out the guys that are, you know, they're like, you know, they just, here's Jesus not doing any of that. And he was innocent. It's, it's bad enough. When you're, being, when you're suffering pain because of what you've done. But how hard is it when you know you are innocent? I mean, talk about a sense of self-righteousness, you know, because of how wrong people are, and you want to set the record straight. Yet, he didn't do that. He didn't speak. He didn't say a word. And we all, you know, we've seen the song, you could have called 10,000 angels. Boy, I would have called them. 
<laughs> I would have said, you know, I know I, I know I need to die, Lord, for the for the uh, for the elect. But man, you need to come teach these guys a lesson. I've had enough of them. <laughs> All right, but good thing I'm not the Lord, because uh, nobody would be saved. Um, so uh, it, it's we just need to recognize that. So that that's you know, so these expectations that God has for us are really quite high. But God has given us His Spirit to encourage us, to strengthen us, to, to give us what we need to be able to live in obedience to what he said. He's given us these words of Paul to help us to think about our life in the right way. So again, this doesn't mean that you can't watch your favorite TV program. It doesn't mean you have to stop reading novels. I mean, you can't read dirty novels, but I mean, the, the idea is that, you know, you can live your whole life, but he's the priority. And this is how you make your decisions and wh what guides you and the way you treat people and all those things that we do as Christians. And if we do that, hopefully, even if we don't ever say to somebody, imitate me, we can live a life that will be an example to others, and they will know who God is because they followed um, our example. Let's pray. Father, as always, we are grateful and so kind. It's so, so, it's so kind of you, Father, in how you treat us and the patience that you exercise toward us. And Father, we pray that, indeed, that we will be as gracious to others as you've been to us, that we will be as forgiving towards others that you've, as you have been to us. That, Father, we will be as good to others as you've been to us. Father, we know that that is a high calling and one that we cannot attain on our own. But Father, we are grateful that you've not left us to ourselves, and we ask, Lord, that you help us to recognize that we indeed are Christians and that we represent Christ, that Christ lives in us and that you expect us to live as if Christ lives in us, and that we are to follow his example, and that by doing so, Father, our lives will be blessed, and our lives will be complete, and we will experience great contentment, and we will experience peace, and we will experience joy and happiness. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to, to see that clearly, and that you will not allow the evil one to muddy our thinking or to cause us to have a diminished view of what you called us to. Father, maybe more than all of that, we are grateful that you have forgiven us of all the times that we failed. And yet, Lord, you will give us more opportunities to please you. So, Father, I ask you to help us to recognize those opportunities. Move us to take advantage of those opportunities. We pray, Lord, that you'll give us a great love for others, that we'll have a growing commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we will want to be used, and that we will make ourselves uh, an instrument, allow ourselves to be an instrument in your hands, to be used by you for whatever purposes you see fit in the lives of others. As always, Father, we are grateful for your incredible patience with us, and ask, Lord, that you would continue to work with us, that we may attain those things that you would have us to attain to. Dismiss us now, Father, with your grace. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.